invite you to turn your Bibles as we desire to worship together today to the book of Ezra, the historical book of Ezra. Starting in chapter 8, verse 15, in context, as you remember here that Ezra had a great burden and responsibility and had been given a lot of privileges by the ruler he was under in that day to go back with a big responsibility to rebuild and establish worship again in Jerusalem. Ezra 8:15 And I gathered them together to the river that runneth to Ahava and there abode we in tents 3 days and I viewed the people and the priests and found there none of the sons of Levi Then sent I for Eliezer Eliezer for Ariel for Shemaiah and for Enathan Elnathan and for Jareb, and for Elnathan, and for Nathan, and for Zechariah, and for Meshulam, chief men also for Joasherib, and Elnathan, men of understanding. And I sent them with commandment unto Idu, the chief of the palace of, of the place, Casiphia. And I told them what they should say unto Idu and to his brethren, the Nithinims, and the place, at the place, Casiphia, and they, that they should bring unto us ministers for the house of our God. And by the hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Melei, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, of Sherebiah with his sons and his brethren eighteen, and Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, of the sons of Merai, his brethren, and their sons twenty, and of the Nithinims, whom David and the princes had appointed for the service of the Levites, two hundred and twenty Nithinims, all of them were expressed by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, the hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. But his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. Then I separated twelve of the chief of the priests, Shabiah and Hashabiah, and ten of their brethren with them, and weighed unto them 
the silver and the gold and the vessels, even the offering of the offering of the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel their present had offered. I even weighed unto their hand six hundred and fifty talents of silver and silver vessels and hundred talents and of gold and hundred talents. Also seventy basins, twenty basins of gold of a thousand drams and two vessels of fine copper and precious or precious as gold. And I said unto them, Ye are holy unto the Lord, the vessels are holy also, and the silver and the gold are a free will offering unto the Lord God of your fathers. Watch ye and keep them until ye weigh them before the chief of the priest and the Levite and the chief of the fathers of Israel at Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So took the priest and the Levite the weight of all the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem unto the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go unto Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was upon us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. And we came to Jerusalem and abode there three days. Now on the fourth day was the silver and the gold and the vessels weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Miramoth, the son of Uriah, the priest, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phineas, and with him was Joseph Bad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui, Levite, by number and by weight of every one, and all the weight was written at that time. All the children of those that had been carried away, which were come out of captivity, offered burnt offerings unto God, unto the God of Israel, twelve bullocks for all Israel, ninety and six rams, sixty and seven lambs, twelve he-goats for a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering unto the Lord. And they delivered the king's commission unto the king's lieutenant and to the governors on this side the river. And they furthered the people and the house of God. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken for their daughters for themselves, for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers have been chief in this trespass. When I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. 
Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I set astonished until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garments and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God, and said, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day, and for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, have delivered unto the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil, and to confusion of faith, as it is this day. And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath forsaken us in our bond, has not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of of the kings of Persia, to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God, and to repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall in Judah, and to and in Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy servants the prophets, saying, the land unto which ye go to possess it is, in, is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the land, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. Now, therefore, give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for inherit an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that is come upon us for our evil deeds, great trespass, seeing that thou, our God, hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve and hath, and hath given us such deliverance as this, should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Wouldest not thou be angry with us till thou hadst consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. Now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed 
weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. Ezra 8.15-10.1 through 10, 1. Brother is asked for the reading of the fourth chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 4. And as they spake unto the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple, and the, Sadduc- and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Albeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about five thousand. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Ananias the high priest and Caiaphas and John the and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. <clears throat> and when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have we done this? Have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you, unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of your of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And behold, the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. And when they had commanded them to go aside, out of the council they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that, indeed, a notable miracle hath been done. By them is manifest to them, to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in his, in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. 
and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was about was above forty years old, on whom this miracle of healing was shewed. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hath made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken, where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with fullness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distributed and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barabbas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Greetings in the name of Jesus. We come today to desire to worship this amazing God, this sovereign God, sent his son, a little babe, the Christ child. We have the privilege of living in an amazing time, just like the the disciples, as they were embarking upon their Christian journey, we have the same opportunity. 
We can be somewhat intrigued as we read through the Acts of the Apostles with as we see the whole story unfold. We have the privilege of reading the whole book and then going back and looking at it piece by piece. And sometimes I wonder if that doesn't hinder the agility of our faith. So I think we have to be careful with that foreknowledge because I want you to go back and picture the disciples in Acts 1. They didn't know what was going to happen. I remember, I've emphasized that in the past. They just did. We had a message kind of around that. And as you see the chapters, the actions unfolding by the power of the Holy Spirit, they only know what they're experiencing. They don't know the book of Romans. They don't know what's going to happen in a few chapters down the road. We do. They don't know how the church at Corinth is going to end up. We do. So I would like us, as we journey here through the book of Acts, that we keep that in mind. To kind of put ourselves in the present context of the story. Not that the other side, the next chapters, don't have importance and aren't encouraging to our faith today. But we want to glean in the way the Holy Spirit was gleaning to the early church. Because we see some unique things that we can be somewhat perplexed with and theologically, if we're not careful, try to diminish the amazing work of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ was the title of our last message. Today, in the name of Jesus, we have this. Powerful prayer with Christian action. Powerful prayer with Christian action. We want to examine that in light of what we have in Acts 4 today. We'll be singing hymn number 23. Remember, as in, as somewhat in the style of the past, as we've been through Acts, I've kind of thrown out some tidbits of information about Acts, the things that happened. Remember that Acts was written by Luke kind of a follow-through of, 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 of the story of, of, the, of, of the gospel of, of Luke as he writes and unfolds. I just And uh, something that's interesting, you notice somewhat of Luke's style. I've already mentioned this, but just something to notice over in the last part of chapter 4, we find Luke doing something, and we find this happening throughout, sprinkled in a sense, throughout the action of Acts. He does prelude or preface the reader as he goes forward. And I think that's exciting. He introduces here Barnabas in the last part as they bring in the, the, the dynamics of chapter 5 and how this, the church was acting and living their lifestyle in a sense. But he introduces a man of, cons- name, a man of consolation. 
But we see some of his personality being introduced. We see this man being introduced. Just interesting. You'll find that as we go through um, Acts. You can find Luke's style in that. Luke was a, you know, it was, he was a gifted writer. He knew how to keep you interested in the story. But he wasn't doing it for a story. He was doing it because of life in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that power, I believe, is emphasized today as we consider powerful prayer with Christian action. I think that would probably be one of the weaknesses of the church today. We can become lackadaisical. We kind of know the whole picture. And so we just kind of become, what do you say, kind of flip-floppy in a sense in our Christian experience. We will pick up here as the disciples, the followers of Jesus, here primarily as we see the church and Peter and John, when they prayed, they prayed and acted on it. And when they prayed, they had a burden. And the burden was to exalt this sovereign God. So we can go back kind of like Brother West did and ask questions as he closed his message last Sunday. He asked the question when he mentioned those points of, of fervent of Christian fervency, he asked the question, why not? Why not? Why not? If we don't have today, if we don't have effective, powerful, life-changing, kingdom-changing, if you want to call it that, kingdom-working experience, why not? I think we should go through and see some of the answers today. Let's sing hymn number 23. What various hindrances we meet in coming to a mercy seat. Yet who that knows the worth of prayer but wishes to be often there? Powerful prayer with Christian actions. I want to just continue just this brief, not in great detail, review. And we'll go back for a second into Ezra. And you can see there is is Ezra, back in Ezra... um, eight and nine that was that I read, we can see that he was a man with great burden. And he had a great purpose in mind, and he, multiple times here, and I just use this because we wanted to take and see, look at the harmony of these prayers. Um, we see one in Acts 4, and we can go back and we can see here just one. There's many, many examples further in Acts and, in, and throughout the Gospels and throughout the Old Testament. Um, so we just have to, basically we need to choose one. And as I, you remember, I'd reference just briefly um, this experience here in front of the children last week, uh, standing there at the river Ahaba. But we can see here, um, as first as we find Ezra stopping at the river that run into the river Ahava, upstream somewhat, then we find him downstream, but he had stopped and considered. And I would say here in the first part of, uh, um, in the first part of chapter 8, we can see this as he would have gathered them together in verse 15 at the river that runneth to Ahava, and then, we, and that's verse 15. But you find him considering something. And I would say him being a man of prayer, you can go back and see more of his prayers prior to this that he probably was a man that prayer was part of this burden that he had there, that there wasn't, their journey wasn't, the association, or the, uh, their compa- companions was not yet complete. The family wasn't put together that needed to go back and carry out 
the responsibility that was there that the king had um, given them a blessing to do. But his commitment was, we can see a, a, a powerful prayer unfold here in, in verse 21 through verse 23. And notice here that there was a, a burden that he had to seek the Lord in the way because he had done something. And you'll pick this up as we go through. Uh, and what's what stimulated, in a sense, this prayer, because as I think a man of God, as we live, all of us, we pray that we do this, we live, we should live, exposed. Because we are before a sovereign God, and we are not the one that carries the sword of might of the having rule over the earth. A sovereign God that created all and knows all and is in control of all. We are his subordinates. We are working for him, but he is in us, and he has purpose for us. So it gives us a unique privilege. But here we find Ezra realizing that he had committed himself. He had committed to faith. When the king, if you go back and read it, said, Hey, Ezra, I'll provide you protection. Because it was danger. There was desert. It was across the river. It was out of control in a sense. Not out of control, but that's where the bandits were. Because the, the military didn't have as many outposts between the Jordan, and Ahaba. And so there was a dangerous journey between there. There was high exposure. It's like crossing the wall between the United States and Mexico. And, and, and we find these words here from um, Ezra that he was not going to... Um, I was, as you notice in verse 22, for I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen. Here is a man of God that was ashamed to ask the world, because he what he knew was convicted and knew that the problem that he was being, that they were all into this whole situation of even going into Babylon, God punishing them was, that they didn't, the, the people of God did not trust the living God, the sovereign God. And so how would he, what a fool it would be for a man of God to ask for the powers again of the world to protect him. He had to make a decision. And he made it. But when you make a decision for God, for righteousness, for the word of God, you become exposed. Important concept to remember. You become exposed to the darts of the devil. God made it that way. If we're flaky, weak Christians, that will cause us to cower at the tower of Satan. And the, and the, and the darts that he throws at us. But you must stand boldly. You must be able to believe. And you must be able to know that God is in control. And I pray that as we go through here with this powerful prayer, considering powerful prayer with Christian action, you can see this. We don't go back. We move on, trusting God. And we find that here with Ezra, as he did. And you, so you can see his prayer and his actions as they were laid out. I'll go over. I wanted to read over here in, um, in uh, chapter 9, starting in verse... Five, really to the end of the chapter, as he gets back into, or he gets to Jerusalem, we find him again. We find a prayer embarking on the journey. We find him with the burden as he, as after the evening sacrifice, 
I arose up, in verse 5, from, hev- from heaviness, and having rent my garments and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God, and said, O oh my God, I am ashamed, and blushed to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased, and our head and our trespass is grown up into heaven since the days of our fathers. He sees the depravity of himself. He sees the depravity of his people. But he knows where to go. And he bows down and lifts up. Acknowledging this sovereign God. Because he knows that God is the only one that can accomplish the work that is to be done. But God does something. He uses the action of his created. And we... As humans, are the epitome of that. The greatest to experience it in the maximum level. Because we have free choice. And we decide. And so what glory and amazing glory it is to him when we freely choose. You think of the weather. Men think that, you know, they're going to try to change the weather. We can't change the weather. We can't change which way the world goes around. And just as Winston and I were just talking the other day about, you know, it seems, maybe it's just because he's getting older. I feel the same way. But you think about it. God is so sovereign because it says it seems like I can't get as much done in a day as I used to. I said, well, join the camp. Wait till you're 62. But you know, what I mentioned was, you know, it could be because he says, I think God's changing time. And I just told Corbin or Clay yesterday as I was working with their watch, he says, you know why you call that a quartz watch? Because you put an electrical impulse to a quartz and it, and it um, perfectly down to the milli, 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 millisecond. Provides rhythm. And man has taken that rhythm that comes out of that quartz and can make electric time. Is that absolutely amazing? But you think of the concept of time that we experience, what do we base time upon? Right now we base, you know, in the old days it was basically based upon the, and it still is today, of the sun and the moon. Everything working so perfectly. But man wants to keep track of that, so we invented, so we come up with this amazing concept this of physics in which we find out that quartz prov- provides something that's so amazingly perfect and accurate, we can take a watch that can be within a couple seconds in a year. Absolutely amazing accuracy. But you know, our God is so sovereign and so amazing that you, do you think not that he could maybe change all of that without us even knowing it? That this impulse is just a little bit different. He's shrinking it down a little bit. And he slows and makes the, the sun and the moon rotate all within that at the same. And things slow down. Or speed up, rather. He could. And you know what? We wouldn't even know it. He is that amazing. That's the God we serve. That's the God we have the privilege of praying to. That's the God that heals. That's the God that allows It's the same God. And we have the privilege of life today in an amazing time. What are we to do with it? Cower? Or exalt? Ezra. I emphasized in our last message, I just wanted to brief that just a a little bit. Remember the last message from Acts was titled, In the Name of Jesus. I'd mentioned in closing, or in the last point, was the remission of sins through his name. 
life through his name, giving a cup of cold water in his name, asking in his name. It's interesting, as we look here in Acts, we find the same thing in Acts 4. I'll just jump there for a second. Go to Acts 4, verse 7, and we find this. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked them, By what power or by what name have you done this? Interesting. A lead-in. The Holy Spirit in the apostles and disciple and apostle John and Peter knew what to say and do. It was a lead-on. By what name? There is in a name. We know that name. Look in verse 10. Be it known unto you all and in all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Whoa, they were trying to get rid of this name, this same court, this same Caiaphas. They wanted Jesus rid. And here he is coming back and haunting. And these men that follow him is healing in the temple, at the temple gate. And here's this man standing here that is witness. And he is, you can't deny it. You see the results of this. They can't deny the facts. All in the name, oh, oh, ah, Jesus of Nazareth? Why did we crucified him? I thought he was in the tomb. I thought maybe somebody stole him away. The world does not understand the power of the Spirit. The world does not understand the power of the resurrection. Who does? A true believer. Go over to verse 17 and 18. And that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. Notice, this name is pretty important. Don't speak in that name. 18. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Here they're still trying to crucify our Lord, which is risen. Why? Because they don't like the fruits that come with, the results that come with this Jesus. The name, again, in the name of Jesus. May we realize it is important that we live and act. That's the basis of the powerful prayer, is in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. We'd like us to consider as we go through here this this one statement. Pray as though everything depends on God and work as though everything depended on me. Pray as though everything depends on God and work as though everything depends on me. That's how God works in us. And we can see that lived out. We're not emphasizing the works of man. But I am emphasizing the power of God working in man. That's where the fruit in the field that we're in comes from. But it's for his honor and for his glory. And that's the amazing predicament that Satan finds himself in as he labors and tries to throw darts at and destroy the work of the believer. We can see it kind of unfolding. We'll see it over and over in Acts. Put them in prison. Whip them. Hold them down. Throw rocks at them. Kill them. 
distort them, defame them. But they just keep getting up. And they keep going. Just consider for a moment. As we go here to this chapter 4, we're really not going to go through. We want to emphasize and look at this um, calling on his name, starting in verse 23. But we want to go back and kind of pull apart two different segments here in chapter 4 of Acts. Verses 5 through 15. We find that the apostles defended in his name. The apostles defended in his name. Really, we see here through the 5 through 14. I've referenced that slightly. Let's just look here for a second. I'm just going to read it in consideration of that. And it came to pass on the morrow that the rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting. You could go back and connect. And this is what happens with religion that does not have the power of God in it. And men submitting to the work of God. But you can go back really and you can see this, this, there was what they call the 400 silent years as the, as Ezra and Nehemiah came back and rebuilt the temple. God became quiet. But during that quiet time, before Jesus, and here we are, we're finding this kind of unfolding that things were quiet no more. When Jesus came into the world, we'll see a little bit of that as we go back and look in Psalms 2 as there's a reference, uh, a prophecy that's referenced here in this prayer today in Acts 4. But we find this quietness going away. But uh, through this quiet time, where we bring out the things of the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the, the structure, the family, the structure the way it was, and as that went forward, you can find here with Caiaphas and notes that mentions right here, the reason I wanted to bring this out, and as many as were kindred of the high priest, it was, it was a one grand, distorted, familial leadership team. Hypocrisy comes out of that. God is pushed back. Religious function takes precedent. And we find distortion. And then there becomes maneuverings and manipulations to keep the agenda and the thing going the way it's supposed to go. That's why Jesus was so emphatic and pointed at the hypocrisy of the leaders of the day. He knew it to the core. He'd seen it unfold. He was looking down, watching it all happen knowing that he would someday be walking amongst, knowing that those would be the ones that would cry out and manipulate, crucify, crucify him. So we find this unique setting, but we find them, the apostles, defending his name. 
And when they had seventh person, when they had set him in the midst of them, by what power? Anyway, I just want to think about it. As you see, this, because there's something that comes out here. As this name of Jesus, as you stand in the name of Jesus, by the power of God, things happen. And if we want to have a happening Christian experience, having happiness, a Christian job description and, and purpose and fulfillment, do it the way the disciples did it, the apostles. Do it what we see here in Acts. Don't point it at your church. Don't point it and blame somebody else, my mom and dad, or some spiritual leader, or some example of the past. Expose yourself for the name of Jesus by the power of God and live there. There is always going to be potential crutches that your flesh and your fear can rely on. Live dangerously. For God, amazing things will happen. Then Peter emphasized, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers and people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by which, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all, notice, what is he going with this, and to all the people of Israel, and by that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. Here we had a man healed. Behind that we have support of a man rose from the dead, which they had put to death. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Only one name, only one God, only one sovereignty. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived this, and behold, the man which was healed standing, standing there with them, and all of a sudden they're put into a tough situation. How do we, how do we judge these guys? And we see, we know, we just have read prior what they did is they, it's okay. He's going to basically smack their hands a little bit and let them go. Just let it be. You know, and, and ask that they don't because you know you're all obedient. Um, people of the land are supposed to listen to the, to the, to the rulers, the high priest. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Yeah. So we're going to use that to advantage what the rulers are thinking. But did it work? No, because what happened? Or what was happening? There is a sovereign God over a man that committed and was living in the name of Jesus. Peter and John, the Christians. The Christian church, which we find here, had grown to 5,000 in just a few weeks. A short period of time. So we find something happens. Notice what is as as there is defense, and we'll get to this on down in in the points of the message here and this last prayer. But it's it's important to understand as there is a standing up in the name of Jesus in faith by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. 
come from defense. Peter didn't have to pre-think what he was going to say. God brought that out, in a sense, laid it out for him. He knew Jesus. He knew the name of Jesus. All he was doing was expressing the very, very facts. And the very facts of truth that he expressed became offensive. Important to remember, kind of jotted off to the side, the source of persecution. Now notice, the next thing as we go on here, just kind of, as we, and we've read this together, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but notice at the flow, I just want to start, jump in at verse 15 and consider as the apostles defended his name, the council opposed his name. Starting at verse 15 through verse 22, there was an opposition that came. And through that opposition is where the power starts to be demonstrated again. And when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. So you notice they were taking them out of the council room, out of the courtroom in a sense, and they, so they were together in their, in their ruling body and discussed and conferred among themselves saying, what shall we do to these men for that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. Now, things were stirred up. So what are we going to do since everything is stirred up? You know, I think what I can kind of see here is, you know, they notice we cannot deny these facts. But remember, we, and again, this kind of goes back and ties in, we do not know, as you're reading, as they're experiencing this, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the, and the great council, Caiaphas, they did not know the future yet. They did not know and experience this power to the level. They knew of the resurrection. They'd experienced it, but they hadn't seen its effect. And so now they've seen its effect on the healing of someone in chapter 3. And it became offensive to them. But notice their response. It's kind of, you can see their response kind of grow because they can't get it pushed back in the bucket. Because there's more going on than they realize. And that's what you want your Christian experience to be. You want the world to see that power, and it can't be restrained. It can't be restrained, and that's why it just amazes me as reading some of the, uh, um, all the, uh, the magazine that comes out of the martyrs. Um, but just thinking of the, some of the stories in there of these men, like in Vietnam or other places um, in Asia, around the world where persecution is great, they just, they just get up and they keep going. I'm going to go until I'm killed. And that's what we see here in the attitude of the Father. They, they had the power of God in them. No matter what happened, I'm going to keep going. And that's why the discouragement is such a powerful tool for Satan. And so they called them back in in verse 18. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right, remember they did, they had, they trying to snuff this power down, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they 
had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them. Because the peop- of the people, for all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above forty years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. So it's kind of interesting. kind of goes along with uh, Brother David's um, morning worship. last week when he was mentioning about maneuverings and manipulation, this, notice that the, they didn't go to dramatic measures at this point. And that's because they didn't know, like I just mentioned, the future. And so we find their intensity unfolding as we move forward. It's like Satan doesn't know about tomorrow. Well, I guess. We should already know that, that he doesn't know about tomorrow. But he learns by what he sees presently and in the past. And the same thing with any man that is being controlled by Satan, trying to put down this name of Jesus, don't know. Is this going to continue? Is it going to be the same? So there's kind of like almost an experimenting or an expression of mildness, just saying, you know, don't speak in this name. And they said, we can't. What are we going to speak of? So they should rebuke them and ask them not to do so. And as we go forward in Acts, we know the intensity increases. Because the threat and the fruit and the threats thereof toward the world, increase. So there is an increase of action of fallen man. So we find this opposition that says, no, I'm not. Don't don't go there. Just just don't speak it. But John makes it very clear, Peter does, and then says, whether is it right in the sight of God to hearken to you more than of God? You judge. What's right? Remember, who Peter was speaking to didn't know, didn't have the Holy Spirit, didn't know the workings of God. It was all a ruling body based upon worldly wisdom and knowledge, shrouded in distorted religion application. I'm not saying the law isn't important, and it was, but they had distorted it and got it totally out and were using it to control the people. It lost its purpose. In their eyes, it was to manipulate. For the Christian, the law is beautiful, and it brings in Jesus. It gives the basis. And we can see that beautiful connection that they've had Here, as we want to consider, I'm going to stop for a second. As we move into this last section, this prayer, starting at verse 23. As we go through Acts, and we find it here several times, even in chapter 4, we find reference back into the Old Testament as there was 
psalms and prophets and, and, and prophecies that unfold, there's something happens that's important. There's a connection between the Old Testament, its prophecies and its teachings, and the dynamics, the power would be things in action, the power of God in action, Christian dynamics, another way we could say the message today is dynamics is power at work. We see this connection that was so vital to the Christian prayer. And to me that's so exciting as there was this burden. You find it multiple places and I want to go through it. I'm kind of using this as we go into the last section here. That there is this always this beautiful connection that's so important for the believer to be connected with the whole word of God. That's why Satan desires to destroy and to distort the word of God even to this day. If you go and look, he's diminishing the sovereignty. He's diminishing the trinity. He's diminishing the power. He's diminishing the work of the Spirit. You can see it over and over again. Because he knows, has has learned by the past, what the power of God does in a believer. Powerful prayer with Christian action. Verse 23, the last of my three points in this chapter, the first one being, the apostles defended his name, the council opposed his name, the church called on his name. Now, we're going to spend the most of our time right here on this prayer that we find unfold as something happens. So we find here on calling on his name, verses 23 through 31, and we're going to stop there. I'm going to go ahead and we'll tie in verse 32 into chapter 5 because it's connected somewhat. Um, what we find here and being, notice something happened. And being let go, they went to their company. And being let, dismissed from the council, after being rebuked and demanded, they went to their friends, the church, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. So we find that John and Peter, and even the one healed and those that would have been there coming back, we find them kind of, what do you want to say, in the trenches. They were in a sense dirty with bullets flying over them and things happening and there was action going on. But what did they do? They came back together to report from the field. And sad to say the field was at the, in the courtroom. And when they got back and reported on the power of God working, what did the church do? What did they do together? We find it right here. And when they heard that they lifted up their voice to God with one accord, and we'll find that over and over, there was a unity. But we find here that they came together when they heard that 
It did something. It drove them to their knees. There's a prayer that lays out here. Because it went back to the sovereign God that was in control. Because they believed, they they knew, and they had seen with their own eyes, and they had experienced. There was many of them. How many was here? I don't know. Was all 5,000 here? I don't think so. I think it was more of an intimate circle within. But that doesn't matter. All of the church was glorifying God. And in that glorying, in the response of the church, was the, was a powerful, was the powerful witness and encouragement. That's what people were wanting. That's lost. They want answers to the pain. They want answers to the problems. Do we have it? We better. I've got a little something I'm going to repeat downstream here a little bit, but I want us to, just to consider as we think of they're coming in here out of the trenches reporting that this... Remember this concept, and we'll further it a little bit later, but action brings reaction. Action in the power of God brings a reaction. A reaction from the saints, a reaction from the world. And the reaction from the world is the source of persecution. If we don't have persecution, if Satan's not pursuing us, I'm going to ask a question. Maybe I don't have any action. Maybe I'm not exposed. Maybe my faith is wavering. I'm trusting the world system. But they come back together, reporting, in a sense, they were in the trenches. They come back and report what's happening. And as they report... There's an encouragement that comes out, and this is what um, happens here. And so we can ask the question, why does urgency in prayer come? As we see them pray, because there was an exposure while they were in action. Working in the kingdom, the workers were exposed. And so that stimulated prayer. Go back with Ezra. There was action. There was reaction. There was dangers in the way. He had to answer. So it was Cyrus. So I'm going to just leave, leave the soldiers at home. But they were in exposure. I think there could have been, a, at this point, remember, they didn't know what was in the future. But even the saints knew that some amazing things were happening. So as things were unfolding, there was excitement. And again, that's why I go back and say I think it's sometimes we are um, somewhat lack that excitement because we see the whole book. And we've read the whole book so many times. But that's to be an encouragement to us. Not just to be an intrigue of the past. It's to be real living. It's to, it's to be vibrant to be alive today for each of us. It's up to us, each, to do that. 
to be called to action and allow the reaction to come. As we consider, you know, why does this urgency in prayer come? Is it another thing that I've got here, just an answer, you could answer this question yourself. You know, God has been proven and is faithful. Besides just not knowing the future, the saints, Peter and John included, needed to know how powerful God really was. They'd seen it. They'd felt it. They'd had the fruit spirit within them. But they were real people. Had flesh. Had emotion. At different times in their life, they had doubt. We can read back and see that. But they were, they were real saints. But God here had proven and was faithful, and that caused excitement. You know, you can look here, the next thing, I've already mentioned this briefly, but notice here, as we go on, and considering this prayer, and we're thinking about, again, what stimulates these, this a prayer, what brings the saints to life to pray. I, I understand, another thing was that they had, uh, um, there was a unity. Go here in verse 24. Notice, and I think it's so important, and I think that's another thing about, I was mentioning about the work of Satan. Let's just, let's just read verse 24. There was a unity that was, that was brought forth. They had, um, there was, had everything. They were with one accord. They were bound together. We can see it here in Acts 2, that, how that was expressed. We see it working here in Acts 5, as we see the introduction of, of the experience of, of Ananias and Sapphira, and, and, and really introduction of Barnabas. But we, there was a one. There was a unity. There was a bond. There is, um, and I think that's so important for us to consider. You know, one of the things the tools Satan uses to destroy the effectiveness of the church is the destruction of unity, of one accord, of having one purpose and one mind. Individualism is selfishness. Bottom line. Individualism, my opinion above the kingdom's opinion or purpose, is dangerous. I think Satan has done a good job in this latter day. I don't know how it was living 200 years ago or 500 years ago. I can read a little bit of history, but I can see it today. Satan diminishes the unity of the church and causes the Christian experience to be that one of an individualism. It's all about me and my salvation and what am I am doing. And I'm standing on my own street corner saying hallelujah. That is not of one accord. Now there is a place for hallelujah and there is a place for unity. But if it does not, I mean for an individual expression, but if it does not bond together, we're diminishing the work and the power of God. Satan has an inroad. And it's not like it's just black and white, because as that inroad comes, and we can see it through history, as churches divide, the power is diminished. The scar of the church is scarred. The, the power of God is scarred and diminished. People with saints become discouraged, and they go off into their own little corner. Satan loves it. Just over here by himself. Yeah, he's got the chance to pray. But somehow, as you go through here, and you can see it, here in this prayer, you can see it back with Ezra, you can see it as we go forward, we can see it in the epistles. There is amazing power and purpose from one accord. 
I think one of the things that happens, just throwing in a tidbit, I think the church fathers, you know, you don't find see the argument. Well, I don't see church membership in the New Testament. But I do see one accord, and I do see church unity. And so church membership is just a way for man to apply the principle. Has it always been that way? Probably not, but in some way it was. So let's be careful. Whenever we see things before us that's encouraging unity, are we discouraging the power of God working? See, we come out, I can't even go to prayer life. Our unified prayer life is somewhat dead. Why? Or could be dead. Why? Consider. But it's important that you find here, like in Acts two um, four twenty four, they were all of one accord. Go back into Acts one fifteen as they're embarking on this journey in Acts of the Apostles. We find they were all together. We've already talked about that. So they were all of one accord. They were all together. Jesus told him to gather together and wait to see the power of God. Here it's went to five thousand. Come together, see the power of God. It's going to go all over Europe. It's going to go north. It's going to go south. It's going to go east. Notice something that's important as we think of powerful prayer. We find in verses 25 through 27. Again, this is interesting. I've already thrown the seed out there for this. But notice in verses 25 through 27, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said. Now, I think it's interesting why they bring this up in the prayer. Psalm 2. Starting in verse 1. I don't have time to go there and read it. Go there when you go home today and read it. It's absolutely amazing. It's so important for us to consider, though. That it, but notice what happened. As this happened, the prayers were, the word of God was central in their prayers. They knew the Bible. And when they prayed, they prayed in the context of the word of God. We can see, again, I won't go to Psalm 2, but you can see them reiterating Psalm 2. I think it's, it shows the power of God and Holy Spirit working, because it's amazing that they say, who by the mouth? Why would they bring this up? But it, it, it fit. That's why. It's why that was written, that you were seeing the epitome. But could, would it apply down the road in the future? Yes. But here it was, unfolding. They didn't sit and argue about whether Psalm 2 applied to them that day or not, or whether it applied down the road when Jesus came back again. Or it only applied back then. It was alive to them in their prayer, and they, it was made central in their prayer. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God. Notice, put, the, put this, thou art God, this sovereign God, which has made heaven and earth, and all that is, is therein, by, who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, quote in Old Testament, why did the heathen rage? They're calling the rulers of the day heathen. And the people imagine a vain thing. Imagine that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. That's present context of something written by in, in the Psalms. For of a truth against thy holy, and, it, and Psalms 2 brings this out. It mentions something, but I think it's interesting. It shows the intimacy of the Trinity. And for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. 
for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings. This is their prayer. And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Notice the burden of their prayer. Exalting, holding up the sovereignty and power of God in the name of Jesus. It's important. You can even see this. In, go to John 15:7 or jot it down. You can see there that the word of God and prayer must always go together. And we're, we're kind of settling down here to praying in the name of, for the purpose of, and with the Lord's will being done. You can kind of see as this comes out. Go to John 15, 7, and you can see that. Jesus himself, you can go over and see that the harmony there is not telling God to, but asking God to do his will in and through me. Our prayers, our powerful prayers, are not telling God something. We're asking him to, to use me. And we find that here. You notice what they had done here when they said, that, that may speak by thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal. Notice he's saying, here's, and this is, is the workings of this holy child Jesus. It's the, uh, the, um, the flesh side, the man side of Jesus, working and affecting the world that we live in. They did something. They asked, for an enabling. That prayer was asking for them to be to be able to stand, for them to be able to express. You can see there in verse 28, and to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Asking God to do his will as it comes out before us. You can go back also in Psalms 2, and we can find there something that's so interesting that comes out over and over again in, in prayers is this concept of a sovereign God. Let's take and break apart this word sovereign just briefly in some in wor- some word structure. Sove, sovereign, sovereign, you could say a super, or ultimate, reign. So God is a super reigner. He is over all. He is the greatest of all. And he reigns over all. That's when we say sovereign God, that's what we mean. And, the, and you can su- find that sovereign God coming out. It's the supreme, in a sense, supreme authority over all things. It's not about you and I, it's about God. You want to say he's a selfish God. But he uses us, and we became, have our ultimate experience in creation, in, as a created being, as we give him glory and honor in all things. We can see this. It's the supreme authority. I just listed several places you go. Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. Verse 27, this supreme authority. As there's a prayer, as there's a discussion, as there is petition to God, this supreme authority comes out. Sovereign. Super reigner. Super king. Nehemiah mentions it. Psalms, you see it in Psalms 145, verse 3. Isaiah 42, verse 5. You can find, just go there for a second, go over to 1 Peter 4, verse 19. We find there, as, there, as Peter is encouraging this suffering church, this is the same Peter 
that we see here as, these un- as this story is unfolding. We find him here writing to a suffering church. He says, Fair of war, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. That faithful creator is the sovereign God. He is faithful because he is sovereign. He is overall. That's part of his personality. That's part of, part of who he is. You can go back again to Psalm 2, verses 4 and verse 11. We can ask the question, do we pray as if God is sovereign? That kind of helps clean up the fact of just praying for me. You're praying for the bigger picture, how God used me. You're sovereign. I trust you. Just consider, the next thing I want us to think about in light of this prayer is the did and the did not. They did not ask for fire to destroy the enemy. They didn't get politically inclined to try to change the people to get rid of Caiaphas, get him out of office. They did not pray for destruction. They did ask for power to preach and heal. And they did, while emphasizing, or they did emphasize the hand of God in the life of the church. Verses 28 through 30, where I kind of gleaned that. Verses 27 and verse 30, I want us to consider here that the great desire and the driver... That thing that gives dynamics of use today, or that they, that they desire from within, and what drives or give us the power, consider. The great desire is, is, is to glorify God, glorify God's child servant, Jesus Christ. Let's pick that up, they're out of the use of, of in Psalm 2, but notice that. It emphasizes Jesus as the Trinity in heaven, and Jesus ministering on the earth. The great desire is to glorify, and that's why we go back to that in the name of Jesus. So important to understand. You know, the glory of God, not the needs of men, is the highest purpose in answered prayer. The glory of God, not the needs of men, is the highest purpose of prayer. That kind of settles some of the facts of the ugly things that go on in the world. It's all done to the glory of God. God's in control of it. We don't like people to hurt, and we're going to go there and minister, and we're going to express that we don't want by showing love to the world around us, to those we find in the ditches along the way, or whatever it might be. But the ultimate is knowing that God is in control, and he's testing me. We desire his will be done. And his work and purpose be done. And to the glory in the name of, to the glory of God in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, God's present confirmation, we can look in verse 
31, but his present confirmation was to do something. Just read it. Because as we live by the power of God, in powerful prayer, within Christian action, there's confirmations that come. Now, this isn't a second Pentecost here, but look in verse 31. But this is just the expression of God. And this is answered prayer, or con- we say answered prayer, a confirmation that God is working. We need those. Whether it's me, or Brother Rich, or you, or whatever, all the things that happen in life, that we're, we're committing in the name of Jesus to his honor and glory. Whether it's to go and preach somewhere, whether it's to do certain things, we need confirmation. And that can come through the church, it can come individually, and it can come from God. And here we find something amazing. And when they had prayed, and the place was shaken, where they were assembled together, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. They stood out. The power of God was at work. You know, if our Christian life lacks the workings and power of God, is it? If our Christian life lacks the workings and power of God, is it? I can finish that question. Is it real Christianity? I think we see the answer to that in the next chapter. We desire, our prayer, is that God's power of the people that are in one accord is powerful prayer with Christian action. 